So we had to go right back to the drawing board and say, OK, we are going to develop the first terminology to collect up safety data for the fetus in pregnancy. And then we also looked at the mum and realised that the same thing needs to be done for the mum. So it's not really surprising that people don't do clinical trials in pregnancy because they haven't previously had the vocabulary to be able to do it properly. Science. Science. Technology. Technology. Medicine. Medicine. Health. Health. These four things make the world go round. Without them, we couldn't exist. This is the Monday Science Podcast. A weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health. Answering your questions or finding experts in the field to answer them. Your host is a pharmacist, an award-winning scientist. She leads her own research group and is the founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes. A tad bit on the qualified side. Welcome to Monday Science. Here's your host, Dr. Bahija Rimi Abraham. On today's episode, we have Professor Anna David. Hello, Professor Anna. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. And thank you so much for coming on Monday Science to talk to us about the work you do, very important work in preterm prevention and prenatal medicine. Yeah, thank you. Really excited to be here and uh, to tell you all about what we do. Perfect. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist, which means that I look after women who are pregnant. I particularly specialize in, in obstetrics. So pregnant women who have problems in their pregnancy, either because they're unwell or because their baby's unwell, perhaps their baby's not growing properly or their baby's got a structural problem. And I look after them. I try to improve the outcomes. I manage their care. I do their deliveries. And occasionally we do fetal surgery as well, which is a really exciting area that we're developing. So it's a really fun job. I work at uh, University College London. So I'm a professor, which means that I do research and education. And I lead a team of about five to six people, a core team, um, doing a lot of research on this area. And I also work at UCLH, University College London Hospital as a consultant. But as well as doing that, I lead the Institute for Women's Health. It's the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Institute of Women's Health at UCL. So we are probably a fairly unique institute in that we concentrate on the whole life course of women's health all the way through to little tiny babies getting pregnant the development when babies are born adolescent growing up getting pregnant having the baby and then all the stuff that follows so right the way through to women's cancer menopause uh, and older age so it covers the whole breadth of women's health which means that we have a lot of interaction across the institute so we're a 90 strong institute made up of scientists clinicians midwives nurses all sorts of people with very close links with the hospital. The Institute sounds really interesting. I like the women's health journey, which I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as if that's quite unique to the Institute because I'm, I'm not sure if many cover that whole 
journey. It is. It is. I think it's a really important part because every part of your reproductive health has an effect on your later life. And we don't just cover women, it's also men. So it's increasing evidence to show that men's health is really important for pregnancy outcome. So recent data have shown that if you are an older dad, you're slightly um, more likely to have babies with problems such as autism later in life. And we know that dad's weight as well and their fitness also has an impact on mum's pregnancy and the baby's outcome. So it's all interacted. And I think for us, you know, pregnancy is a sort of unique time when, when we get to meet women quite, quite commonly, quite frequently, and we can have a lot of impact, but much of the health of getting a well fit pregnancy happens actually before you get pregnant. So we do a lot of work about fertility education, trying to encourage people to get fit before they have a baby and educating people about periods and what happens and why periods are important and what's a bad period and what's not a bad period and, you know, how you can manage all of those kind of issues, which we we as women deal with day to day we've got quite a big focus on the menopause and and, and how we can improve access to treatment and, and understanding of menopausal symptoms so it's a really good way to bring everything together into one big institute so we can talk together and try to improve outcomes for women families babies and dads um, the, we've been doing this women series throughout the year really to try and highlight just everything around women's health but then we're missing the conversation about men's health really love after this to have a discussion around maybe if we can get some some of your experts around men's health because it's if, I mean it's really I was about to say it's not discussed enough but it's weirdly enough I don't feel women's health is discussed enough and and the right things is discussed enough in a public forum and um, we're finding that maybe there's even more so we had a guest Dr Bola Grace who spoke about her study trying to get men into the conversation but there was this feeling that they didn't feel they were invited so it'd be really interesting to explore that further you mentioned you also conduct fetal surgery yes we do so uclh was commissioned with university uz leuven in belgium university hospital belgium leuven in belgium to by the by nhs england to do the first fetal surgery service in the uk so we we repair spina bifida defects so babies that are have developed a spina bifida in, in the spinal cord, which is a sort of herniation. It's where part of the, 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 the vertebral column, the bones is, is missing during development. And so the, the, the very, very delicate nerves in the, in the spinal column herniate out and get damaged. And we know that repairing them before birth, repairing that defect before birth actually improves outcome. So we set up, it was originally a charitable funded to do this with a lot of support from Professor Jan de Prest in, in Leuven. And uh, we were working for about 18 months and then NHS England looked at the evidence and felt there was compelling evidence to offer it as a service. So we've been commissioned for about 18 months now. We've operated on around over 30 women with very, very good outcomes. So we provide the service between us and, and, and Leuven across the UK. That's amazing. And is there, I was going to say, is there a stage in pregnancy that it, there's a more risk? I'm so blown away. Sorry, I'm stuttering. I'm like, it's just amazing. <laughs> what's the uh, earlier stage in pregnancy that one can operate and what's the let, later or the late, latter stage? Yeah, in pregnancy that one can operate. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really important point. Obviously, you've got to make a diagnosis. You've got to be able to see the baby clearly enough to know that the baby's got spina bifida. So probably the earliest time it's picked up is around about 12 weeks. So pregnancy being 40 weeks, 12 weeks is the sort of dating scan. So we would probably see it at that point. 
but generally the data has shown that uh, operating between around 20 and 26 weeks is the best time. We don't want to operate later than that because if you leave the defect too open, there is uh, less chance that when you repair it earlier, it's going to um, improve the outcome. But also we don't want to operate too early because then that might increase the chance of the membranes around the baby popping. So one of the problems with, with doing fetal surgery is you're making a hole in the womb and that hole never really seals up. You're making a hole in the womb and hopefully the pregnancy continues so they don't get an infection. But but quite a high proportion of women that there's fluid around the baby that then leaks out. And so that causes them to go into labour early. So it's a really fine balance between operating too soon, but not too late, because then you miss the, the opportunity to actually improve the baby's outcome. Amazing. And is it uh, like a keyhole surgery? Do you use a robot or anything to help with that? <laughs> well, there, there are, there, yeah, there are groups that are doing that. I think we are currently using the, the technique that's proven by a big randomized controlled trial. So we actually do what's called open fetal surgery. So we do a cut across the part, lower part of the, the skin and we do a small cut and it's getting smaller and smaller because what we found is if we make a smaller, smaller hole, actually the risk of preterm birth going into labor before 37 weeks is much lower. Um, we are working on developing fetoscopic techniques, but it does take time uh, because it's we need to make sure that the repair of the defect is exactly as good as the repair of the defect that we might do with open fetal surgery. So currently our neurosurgeons come in, we open up the defect on the womb, we open up the, the, the hole on the womb, they come in, then they repair it exactly the same way as they would do after birth, a three layer closure. They, they have little, you know, micros microscopes on their, on their, their glasses, so they can really see in very, very fine detail. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful to watch. And then we put everything back together again and wait, hopefully two to about 37 weeks before they deliver. With fetoscopic surgery, what you need to do is, is put two or three little tiny ports about the size of my finger into the womb, and then you're literally operating down the end of a telescope. So it's that's quite challenging. And what they do is they put some humidified carbon dioxide into the womb itself. So they're actually operating in gas inside the womb, and then hopefully actually creating the same repair technique as you would do postnatally or by open technique. So that's why I think the evidence is not quite there yet, but there has been nice, have looked at the evidence, have felt that it's still a research procedure. So we are developing it to offer it as an experimental procedure. I think it will likely come in in the next few years, but we just need to make sure that first of all, it's safe for the mum and then it's, it's as effective as the gold standard, which is currently the open technique. Amazing. I have to say, I'm, I'm always in awe when I get the very unique opportunity to speak to surgeons um, such as yourself, because as you were describing, you're using your hands. It's almost like you were reliving. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I mean, well, we did one on we did one on Tuesday, actually. And I, oh. yes, I, mean, I was scanning. It's, it's a big it's a big team. We have two anaesthetists, two, two neurosurgeons, two fetal medicine specialists, obstetrician, fetal surgeon. And we have all the scrub team, the nurses. I was scanning this little baby for about two hours and you get intimately involved with them. You know, you watch a little heart beating and think it's all going fine. Keep going. No problem. The heartbeat going along 120 beats per minute. And you're like, great, carry on. <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I could see the passion. And that actually brings me up to the question of how did you, I, well, to put it bluntly, how did you get here with, in your career? Like, where did the passion for what you're doing, you know, come from? 
I think I always enjoyed learning about development. I remember when I was at medical school, I really enjoyed the, the quite didactic teaching that we had about, about, you know, pregnancy. It's, it's, it's an amazing concept. And, and so I, I actually, when I, I was, I went, I went traveling when I was a medical student and I ended up traveling with, with a friend to India and we were in a small hospital on the Nepalese Indian border. And being a woman, I was allowed into labor ward and I delivered my first baby in India. And it was the most amazing experience. I must've been only about mm, 20. And uh, I was there in labor ward and they said, oh, deliver the baby. In fact, the, I delivered the baby, the baby slipped through my fingers and then very gently plopped onto the sort of, fortunately there was the sort of little, little mat below and went, wah. So actually, you know, everyone clapped and said, that's great. But yeah, and that was it. That started off my love of, of, of um, pregnancy. I think the great thing about it is it's a combination of medicine and surgery. So you have women who are fit, you have women who are not so fit. And there's this wonderful dynamic between the mum and the baby. And I love going and seeing my babies in the special care baby unit after they're born, because you build up a really lovely relationship with they often you know they look the same when they come out sometimes you go I saw that hand when it was inside but it, it's yeah it is sad sometimes when when things go go badly and and all one can do is say you had an awful time I'm so sorry look after them really well and then hopefully support them if they want to try again for another pregnancy it's never boring there are some really interesting ethical dilemmas that happen, but also it's very exciting. I mean, on labor wards, you can end up having somebody who's really fit and well, suddenly has a major complication, you sort it out, three hours later, they're well, they're sitting with their baby and everything is fine. So it's it's never boring. Sometimes it'd be nice if it was boring because <laughs> it can be a bit, a bit uh, too exciting at times, but it's endlessly fascinating. Amazing. I've, I've often heard that people comment about the, there's still that air of mystery around pregnancy, birth, and just that it's just, it's never ending, <laughs> never ending mystery. Are, are you able to share of any examples of an ethical dilemma that could be of interest? I don't know if you can share. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are many. I currently see a lot of women who have high-risk pregnancies. So what I mean by that is they have a, a big problem. One of the commonest that I see is women who have a very, very small baby that's not growing very well in the womb. So something called fetal growth restriction. And not infrequently, I see women where the baby is growing so slowly that you're not quite sure that the baby's ever going to get up to a weight where you're going to be able to deliver them. And that's a real dilemma because you're talking to women, to couples, you know, people together and saying, well, I'm really sorry, I don't know whether this, whether your baby's going to get there. And one of the areas I'm working on is actually developing a treatment to try to improve growth in the womb before the baby's born. And we now have got some really great data to show we can predict what's going to happen in the really small pregnancies that I see. So women that have a baby that's less than 500 grams, less than the third centile. So they're really, they're on the bottom 3% of the population. We can now say fairly confidently what's likely to happen just by very carefully following through scanning the baby over one or two weeks. And we know in that cohort, if we see them in mid-pregnancy, around a third of them, the baby's not going to survive and two thirds of them, the baby's going to survive. And what's important for counselling is to be able to tell parents, well, I think, yes, your baby's really small, but actually 
it's going to grow and we will get there and we'll have a live baby at the end of it and we'll do everything we can to help. But then there are some pregnancies where you have to say, look, I never write off any, any baby. I never say, look, it's never, never say never because you never know. But I think it's on, it's good to be honest with people and say, I am very worried that your baby's not going to make it. And so that's an ethical dilemma because of course, one of the options might be, particularly if the mum is becoming unwell, would be to say, look, it may be more better for your health rather than to deliver a baby that's really going to have a very poor chance of survival or is not going to survive. It might be better actually to induce your labour and to end the pregnancy. Those are very difficult conversations to have, but very important that you that you raise it at the right time and talk through all the different issues, give parents plenty of time to come back to ask the questions. So, yeah, but then, you know, very often you get surprises. So a little baby that you think is really small and not growing and so they just keep going, keep going, and then you deliver them at... 30 weeks and they're maybe 700 grams and they come back and see you two weeks two years later and they're they're doing well and you think wow <laughs> amazing you must get a lot of um, children that you've delivered babies you've delivered come back and say hello so we we do the our preterm birth clinic runs on a Wednesday morning and we do get quite a lot of ladies bring their babies back and it's like so lovely to see them it's, so it's, yeah lovely well as you know we're still in a pandemic I, I can't say we were I always have <laughs> We're here. <laughs> um, we're, still, we're, yeah, still. we're still here. And so during the pandemic, have you been listening to any songs? Are there any songs you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been listening to Dua Lipa. I'm a bit of a fan of Dua Lipa and, and, and I loved her new album. Oh gosh, let me just, let me think about, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Future Nostalgia was really great. And I mean, I loved her, one of her songs, New Rules, that was way back at the beginning. But yeah, yeah, I love that. And I love the way the fact that she put it out when everything, all the media, social media stuff and all the sort of music and the cinemas were closing down. And she was a bit like, no, I'm just going to put my album out there because I think everybody needs a bit of fun. And I love that. So yeah, we put I put that on. My 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 family a bit like, oh mum, pop music. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you need something to pop along to. Yeah, definitely. definitely. I have to say the artist, artist and, and creatives really helped carry us in and I mean, you know, one of the sectors of many, many people that really helped. But I, I really it was quite amazing to see how creatives and artists were like look we're going to step up and we really needed that because already morale was low and I think it could have been lower if we hadn't had the support from creators and artists who were just selflessly just saying here have have this see if it helps yep. you know yeah uh, and she she was advised apparently not to put it out but you just think well you know you you've just got to do that because it's about but train people up so I, I was I was really pleased when that came out <laughs> nice <laughs> and what about any have you been watching any films or read any books that might well yeah I mean I'm, I'm hoping to go and see Fall Guy quite soon yeah I like uh, that's going to be fun I mean I like all sorts of different films but books I, I dug out the book that I'm currently reading actually oh, so 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 I'm currently reading The Foundling by ah. Stacey Halls so I like the uh, the kind of books that are sort of historical fiction this is a really good book because it's about London's Foundling Hospital which is actually just down the road from 
from where I work at near Great Ormond Street. Yeah, um, and it, it, yeah. Sorry, it's right near UCL because I was at School of Pharmacy. I did my postdoc yes. at UCL, so oh, it's right next yes. to the museum. Yes, it's yes. right next there. So, so it is still an active, you know, charity for for children who are, are you know, placed for adoption. But it's a story about somebody who leaves her child at the Foundling Hospital. So it was a place where you could leave a child if perhaps the mum had died or you couldn't afford to look after your child. And it's about how she goes back a few years later to have she got enough money together to look after and discovers that the child has gone. <gasps> it's very exciting. It's great. Oh, and like and it's it's 17 yeah, yeah, late, late 1700s. So really interesting area that at the time that I don't know much about. So yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Thank you. You've actually got me thinking, oh, I've taken a note to, to have a read. What have been the challenges trying to conduct clinical trials in your area of work? I think it's a real overall challenge to treat pregnant women. People are terrified of, of giving any kind of intervention in pregnancy. And I think this has really come home with, with the COVID pandemic. You know, now that the most, the people who are, you know, in the 18 to, to 40 range who are most likely to have not been vaccinated are pregnant women. And we now know that COVID vaccination is safe for pregnancy, but we've not, it's not been trialed. It was never originally trialed in pregnant women. We're now doing a trial at UCLH of COVID vaccination in pregnancy. But, and I completely understand why pregnant women are, have reservations about, take, about having the vaccine. We now have good evidence from over 200,000 pregnancies that COVID vaccination is safe. But that's that's serendipitous. That's from women who volunteered to have the vaccine and not from trials. And we have to get over this big barrier. Pregnant women want trials. They want to take part in clinical trials. And I've recruited to many clinical trials in my career. And I've never had a problem get asking women and them saying yes. Some of them are saying that's completely up to them. What we've been working on recently is a way to accurately assess safety in clinical trials. Because there's hardly any clinical trials of drugs in pregnancy, the whole sort of way that you conduct clinical trials in pregnancy, the setup isn't there. So if you want to assess a sort of safety event or how safe is a new drug, you have all these ways of defining adverse events. So an adverse event is something that happens to somebody taking part in a clinical trial and they're defined and they're graded, scored one to five. And all the trialists know about this and everybody working in the pharmaceutical industry and in, in clinical trials grade all these adverse events. So when we were first looking at developing a treatment for fetal growth restriction, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to as complications or adverse events in a trial using a new drug? And particularly when I'm going to use that drug in a woman who's got a very, very small baby. So we looked and we thought, well, there's no way, nobody's ever designed a system to assess adverse events in the fetus. There's nothing in the literature about a baby developing perhaps a cyst on the brain or having a bleed or having poor movement or and there was absolutely nothing out there. So we had to go right back to the drawing board and say, okay, we are going to develop the first terminology to collect up safety data for the fetus in pregnancy. And then we also looked at the mum and realised that the same thing needs to be done for the mum. So it's not really surprising that people don't do clinical trials in pregnancy because they haven't previously had the vocabulary to be able to do it properly. When you're doing a trial, you're actually collecting up information about how safe it is. Number safety is the number one 
focus really and if you don't have a way of measuring safety you can't collect it up so we've developed what's called mfet which is maternal fetal adverse event terminology and it's the first consensus so it's a consensus from people all over the world about what's important what are the adverse events how are they graded and many of the regulators so the fda the ema mhra are very interested in in this terminology because what it means is we can now start talking to each other in a language that everybody understands so if I say to somebody, well, I've got a grade three problem of, of development of the eye in a baby, or I've, that everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. If I say I've got a grade three cyst on the lung in a fetus, now everybody understands that. So it's a way to really get people to take on pregnancy drugs trials seriously. That's amazing. And, and you know, something that is a universal system that can connect everyone will also even ho hopefully facilitate even more global collaborations in this area. How did you gather, like, I mean, I can see where the gap would have been, you know, because as you said, there's not many, there, there isn't, you know, this whole issue of pregnant women in clinical trials, but bringing it all together that everybody agrees to that term, how did you get there? How did you do that? Well, we, we started off, this was a, a programme grant which was funded by the European Commission called Everest, and, and we were developing a, a, a drug. It was a maternal gene therapy, giving the mum gene therapy to improve blood flow in the uterine arteries, which we think is a common cause of very severe growth restriction. And so we already had an international team of, of collaborators, partners from the European Commission, from Europe, so Germany, Sweden, and, and, and Spain. And so we all came together and realized there was this gap. So we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to break it down into different fetal organ systems. So we've got the fetal brain, the lung, the heart, etc. So we came up with our initial definitions and we, we sat down in a big room and graded them all. And then I went to all my friends and colleagues out there internationally, globally, and said, please, could you, could you uh, say whether you agree? We did what's called a Delphi consensus. So we had two rounds of this Delphi consensus where people looked at it and said, we agree, we disagree. Fortunately, after the first round, 70% of them said, yeah, we agree with most of it, which was great. And then we did another round just to say, do you agree with our very little minor refinements and they went yes and we also had patients included from the very beginning so we invited representatives from patient groups like antenatal results and choices bliss cdh uk shine who are charities we've worked with a lot on fetal structural abnormalities and and these kind of areas very close to their heart and they gave us some amazing tips like you know we should be thinking about the distress that undergoing a trial might leave a woman and what about fetal pain what are we doing about fetal pain we're a bit like mm, yeah we haven't thought about that one so it was very good to have them involved from the word go we put it all together so it was, it was five years it was a complete labor of love to get it done five years from start to finish wow so we, we just produced it and we're now trying to get it across because this means that whatever drugs trial you're doing in pregnancy you can now grade adverse events for the mum and for the fetus which is a complete breakthrough and speaking to you know drugs companies they're like oh this is amazing and it's been adopted by uh, medra who are the medical dictionary of regulatory affairs but you would know all about this of course through your through your your work but very important medra has now disseminated this and said these are the definitions and so we now have definitions for 
postpartum hemorrhage, antepartum hemorrhage, you know, a, a fetal abnormality in the lung, a fetal abnormality in the kidney. We have definitions for this. So it's 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 a start. It's not a final set. It's version 1.0, as I keep on saying. <laughs> I mean, and we'll, we'll have it. I'm sure people will add to it and they'll say, oh, you've forgotten that. We'll go, yes, we'll do that in the next version. But it's a start. I mean, it's a brilliant start and it's it, we need more of this, you know, because this is actually going to help get more treatments, more medicine. So it's it. I mean, to hear that it took five years, it really highlights the requirements of research and, and for change, perseverance and patience. You've been listening to the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology medicine and health we hope you've gotten some useful and thought-provoking info from the show and we hope you had fun along the way we know we did we'll be back soon but in the meantime hook up with us on our website at www.mondaysciencepodcast.com shoot us an email at info at mondaysciencepodcast.com Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Monday Science. And access episode summaries at mondayscience.medium.com. See you next week on the Monday Science Podcast.